Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, I'll bring you the latest news, discoveries and stories here from the University of Glasgow's College of Arts and Humanities. Hello and a very warm welcome to the third season of the Stories from Glasgow podcast. I'm Dr. Sia Jackson, your host, and whether you are a new or a returning listener, I am thrilled to have you here with me today. So, season three and even more fascinating stories from our College of Arts and Humanities for you. What can you expect this season? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but We're going to be rolling dice. We will be traveling back in time. We're going to go on tour of Scotland and a little bit of Wales. Plus, we'll also be considering a couple of philosophical questions along the way. Now, I hope you've got a comfortable pair of shoes and maybe a waterproof at the ready because we're about to join Information Studies Dr. Rosie Spooner for a walking tour of Kelvin Grove Park and Museum and Art Gallery. Rosie's research examines walking as a decolonial and critical heritage practice. And she does this through running walking tours of the Parker Museum and Art Gallery. I had a great time chatting to Rosie about her research. And in the process, I certainly learned a lot about Kelvin Grove Park. And I'm sure you will as well. Rosie will be running her walking tours later this month as part of Black History Month. I'll share at the end of the episode how you can join Rosie on one of those tours. But for now, I invite you to join us as we explore the hidden histories of Glasgow's connections to empire in Kelvin Grove Park and Museum and Art Gallery. So my name is Rosie Spooner and I'm a lecturer in Information Studies, which is in the School of Humanities, which is in the College of Arts and Humanities. My research, I suppose I mainly identify as like a cultural historian and I do cultural histories of empire. And looking in particular at like the visual and material culture of empire and specifically of British colonialism and imperialism. So I look mainly at the British empire. In the past, my research has had like a very historical focus. And that's kind of comes out of my training, like as a, as a historian and as kind of a, an art historian. But recently, it's also kind of taken a turn to the present, um, which is sort of a new development for me. So looking at both cultural histories of empire, but crucially, like how that history then um, continues to impact the present. And what are the kind of legacies that are still with us and the legacies that yeah, have come forward into the present from things like chattel slavery and from colonization and from imperialism. And in particular, thinking about how that past is represented and reflected in heritage spaces, museums, galleries, and heritage sites, which are places of like collective memory. So I'm kind of increasingly interested in how history is transformed into heritage within places of collective memory. Quite kind of interdisciplinary and increasingly more about like the past in the present. Today we're going to be talking about some of your work in terms of your critical heritage walk. Hopefully by now some of our listeners will have been able to join you on some of them and if not we'll tell them towards the end of the episode how they can join you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what they are and how how they started? What it was that maybe inspired you to start them? Yeah so they came about in like a a really like kind of happenstance sort of way. So it goes right back to 2017. 
I was approached by CRER, the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights, which is the organization that programs and curates Black History Month in Scotland to develop a walking tour of Calvin Grove Park, kind of coming out of my PhD research. So Calvin Grove was the site of three great exhibitions between 1888 and 1911. So that was what my PhD thesis was on. And someone who was with CRER at the time kind of knew about that work and said, would you be up for developing and leading a walk of Calvin Grove Park that looks at how the history of the park was entangled within histories of chattel slavery, colonization and imperialism? And I said, sure. But, you know, having like no previous experience of doing anything like that, but it was just like an amazing opportunity. And I felt very grateful for being asked. So I said, yeah, you know, yes, absolutely. And that really built on like longstanding work that CRER have done in that respect. They've been leading like walking tours of the Merchant City and the High Street area for years around looking at how that part of Glasgow, um, how the built landscape, I suppose, how the urban landscape is extremely representative of the history of Glasgow's and by extension Scotland's involvement in uh, the institution of chattel slavery and of the transatlantic economy. So CRER have really been like at the forefront of that work. And they've been doing that for, you know, well over a decade, 15, 20 years now. So they wanted to offer um, walking tours as part of the Black History Month in Scotland program that were kind of asking similar questions or looking at similar histories, but in other parts of Glasgow. That was kind of why I was approached. I said, yes, you know, that would be amazing. Um, So develop this walk, which at the time was both through Kelvin Grove Park and Kelvin Grove Art Gallery Museum. So it was like a two hour walk. First half was in the park. Second half was in the museum. And really viewed that as, I suppose, as like dissemination of existing research, because it did like largely build on the content of the walks, largely built on like existing research that I had done mainly for my PhD. But then I did some supplementary archival research as well and got really engrossed in like the history of Calvin Grove Park. The year following, I was approached by the people who organize um, the Glasgow Doors Open Days Festival, Glasgow Building Preservation Trust. And um, they had heard about the walk that I'd done in 2017 for Black History Month. And so I got invited to run the walk during Doors Open. I said, yes, that would be great. So again, in 2018, I did it for Doors Open and then Black History Month in October. And it was kind of like after those two iterations, those two cycles, I suppose, that I then started like noticing that something else was going on, I guess. And the walk shifted from being about public engagement and dissemination to opening up like a whole different set of research questions around the experience and the action of walking. And in particular, like walking as a collective, what it means to kind of walk with other people in these sites of empire and to have conversations that sometimes can be quite challenging and sometimes can be like unsettling and, and uncomfortable. And kind of what was that, what was that experience doing? And so I got really interested in whether walking can be a way of fostering and I suppose supporting like deeper engagement with histories of place. And in particular, like critical engagement with how history is represented in these heritage sites. So going back to kind of what I said earlier of how that process of transformation from something turning into turning from history into heritage, because that's a constructed process. So I started getting really interested in how walking fits into those conversations and how walking can perhaps support a deeper understanding and a deeper acknowledgement with these quite challenging topics 
and how that experience of kind of being in the environment and being amongst others, but in a very like small group, you know, was a really different experience than, you know, let's say like going to a two hour lecture where someone's talking about the history of Calvin Road Park and its connections to chattel slavery and colonization. You know, is there something different that's going on when you're in the environment, walking in situ and having conversations? Yeah. So then I kind of got interested in those types of research questions. So it was a really unplanned, totally unmeditated shift in my research practice, which has been brilliant. It's been really meaningful. Um, I've learned so much from it and will continue to learn so much from it. But it's also been really challenging because it's kind of taken me like way outside of my comfort zone as a researcher. I kind of regard doing the walks now as like a form of practice-based research. You know, for someone who's like trained in doing archival research, I'm like, what is what is this now? I don't know what this is. Practice-based research. And also now I do participant feedback. So I collect feedback um, after every single walk. And so dealing with that type of qualitative data is also something that's pretty new to me. So it's been a really like steep learning curve, but incredibly, incredibly stimulating, really, really gratifying. Sounds like a really powerful experience, both for you as the researcher and the person leading the walks, but also the people who are joining you. And presumably, no walk is the same. You're getting lots of different people that are joining you. So, yeah, that sounds like there's a lot for you to engage with and and untangle, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, as you say, kind of like every walk is different. Now, when I run the walks, they're two separate walks. So there's one of Kelvin Grove Park and there's a separate one of Kelvin Grove Museum. After those few iterations, it also became clear that it was just kind of way too much content to try and deal with in a single walk. So I kind of disentangled the two. So now there are two separate critical heritage walks, one of the park, one of the museum. And I try to be consistent, obviously. So there are constants on every walk. I stop at the same set of locations and, you know, I have a script. I try to relay the same information on every single walk. But that means that I don't read from my scripts. They almost function as like a security blanket. But I I rarely actually like read from them because I think that then that creates a very different type of experience. If you're holding a stack of A4s, you're literally putting up a barrier between yourself and your fellow walkers. And it also becomes very didactic. You know, if you're from the participant's experience, you're just watching someone reading from their notes. That's not super engaging. (laughs) So I really want to try and create an atmosphere on the walks where it's very discursive. And yes, I'm kind of, you know, normally leading the walks. I'm taking us from A to B to C. And I have like information that I want to relay at every location. But I'm also very, make it very clear that this is a conversation. and what people kind of bring to the walks, um, the questions that they have, but also like their own personal memories of being in Kelvin Grove Park and Kelvin Grove Museum, like their own knowledge and experience is invaluable and it adds to like the richness of the walks. So I kind of try to be constant in terms of the information that I'm relaying, but I don't overdo it to try and really like foster that sense of that sense of conversation and that openness is really, really important. But it does mean that every single walk is different. They're all unique happenings, I suppose. And some of the factors I can control, but other ones are completely beyond my control. And that's kind of where I suppose the richness is. Do you want to maybe take us through some of the locations in the park that you take your tours to? When you and I met up previously, you mentioned the skate park as 
a particularly interesting location. So can we maybe dive into some of those a bit more? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the walk of Kelvin Grove Park, I should say both walks, so the park and the museum, last for about two hours. But again, it can depend. You know, if we sometimes we get really caught up in a particular location, and that might mean that the walk ends up being a little longer. Or it might mean that on the fly, I cut out a stop in order to make sure that it doesn't turn into a two and a half hour walk. So, you know, there are all those uh, kind of minute decisions that I make on the spot. But in general, they last for about two hours. Because I think anything beyond that is a bit unreasonable <laughs> in terms of what I'm kind of asking people to participate in. But yeah, so the walk of Calvin Grove Park starts at the eastern entrance to Kelvin Grove Park, you know, not the big one at the top of Kelvin Grove Street, not the pretty well-known one that's just off of Gibson Street. It's a very unassuming location that's kind of at the corner of Clifton Street and LaBelle Place behind, there's like a small cafe in Kelvin Grove Park at that eastern edge and it's kind of behind the cafe almost. So it's a really, really unassuming location. It's like next to some bins, <laughs> like recycling bins and stuff like that. But the reason why we start there is because in part logistics, it creates a good route. But also, and really more importantly, it's because in in 2020, in summer of 2020, there was a very unassuming piece of graffiti that appeared in this part of Kelvin Grove Park. So over the last five years, five, six years, I've spent a lot of time in Kelvin Grove Park. Um, and now feel as though I really do know it, you know, each little, each corner, each blade of grass sort of thing. So I noticed over the summer of 2020 that, yeah, this piece of graffiti appeared on a pretty small information panel that is affixed to the, the entrance gates at that, at that part of Kelvin Grove Park. And the piece of, this piece of signage just kind of explains like, what you should or should not do within Kelvin Grove Park. Pick up after your dog, don't litter. Uh, it's just a very like small information panel, but it says, you know, Kelvin Grove Park at the top of it, put up by Glasgow City Council. And I noticed in 2020, summer of 2020, that someone had crossed out the word Kelvin Grove. So in like black marker, felt it marker, I guess, I crossed out the word Kelvin Grove and written imperialist over top in block capital letters. It's not a huge piece of graffiti. It's not, you know, an amazing like artistic piece, but it's really pointed and really poignant. So we start the walk there. And I tell this story about this pretty unassuming piece of graffiti, but one that I think like speaks volumes, because I think for me, it really, it's like a symbol of how the past continues to shape and impact the present. Because for someone, Kelvin Grove Park was felt to be a really imperialistic space in 2020. My own kind of hypothesis is that probably this piece of graffiti was done where that summer of 2020, where we saw the emergence of a really global Black Lives Matter movement, um, and Glasgow was the site of, of protests and marches. And so my guess would be that it was a response to that or is kind of evocative of that moment. But but it's now like very worn. After like years of rain and snow and dust and all sorts and sun, it's really faded now. Um, but it is still just about there. Um, and I've got the pictures to prove that it was there. So we start at that location. And yeah, I tell the story about the graffiti because it is for me this symbol of how the past continues to impact the present and how those that history of uh, chattel slavery and colonization and imperialism continues to like shape and determine really the world that we exist within today. And these are not topics which can be confined to the past. 
the past totally affects and like impinges upon the present in really, really powerful ways. And for me, that's totally all wrapped up in this piece of graffiti. And I think it speaks to the way that like, there's no kind of single experience of a heritage space. And that's something we talk about on the walk is that there's no like single universal experience of heritage. We all bring our own, our own interests, our own knowledge, our own life experiences to our encounters with the past. And so really like acknowledging that that process is really important. Um, And it's something that I kind of talk about right at the beginning to like set the scene. We might share some elements, how we think about Calvin Grove Park, how we think about Calvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum, but crucially like what we bring, our own understanding of the past is totally shaped by our own like subjective selves. And I think that that's like quite important. So I kind of use that piece of signage as a starting point for those conversations and to kind of set that foundation, I suppose. And then and then really we just like wind our way through Calvin Grove Park and eventually like find our way up to Park Circus. And we stop, I think it's like eight or nine stops in total over those two hours. And yeah, some stops, you know, elicit more conversation than others. And part of my kind of research method now involves like taking field notes after every single walk. So I often like will find a bench in Calvin Grove Park and just kind of write down my reflective field notes. And I try to capture, I try to capture that information. You know, what were the locations within the park that seemed to have like particularly caught people's attentions? What were the types of questions that people asked? What were the types of comments that people made? The moments for group conversation, what directions did they go in? I try to capture all of that as best I can, albeit in like a super subjective way through writing these reflective field notes. Yeah, so we kind of stop at various locations, some of which I suppose those that history of empire is very obvious. So the kind of archetype, you know, the perfect example for that would be the Frederick Roberts Memorial statue, which is right at the top of Park Circus. That's like quite in your face, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, the imperial discourses that are at play with that statue quite kind of like loud heritage I suppose but mainly in the main most of the places where we stop in the park it's actually much more quote-unquote hidden because we're stopping at locations where a building used to stand but it's been demolished or there's just no plaque there's no sign there's no form of heritage interpretation do quite a lot of like imagining quite a lot of like creative thinking because we're trying to conjure up buildings or monuments or events that there's very little in the way of tangible physical heritage within the park so it's kind of different I think than like a lot of other walking tours where you you're looking at something in situ here is this building I'm going to tell you about the history of this building a lot of the conversations that we have on the walk of Kelvin Grove Park we're talking about things that we can't see anymore but of course that unseeing it doesn't mean that there's no history obviously so it's about kind of like teasing out those histories the skate park is somewhere where we linger for a little bit longer. It's one that elicits quite a lot of like conversation. So the skate park is the location of where there was a, a mansion house called Kelvin Grove House that was built in 1782, I believe. It was the centerpiece of a large estate that had been created in the early 1780s by someone named Patrick Calhoun. Calhoun purchased two existing estates but which were more like farm farmlands like agricultural lands bought these two estates 
and then fused them, put them together to create a single landed estate, which was effectively Calhoun's country retreat. So that's hard for us to imagine now because we really feel like we're in the city. The West End is super built up. It's a very residential area. It's really busy. But in the late 18th century, that was outside the boundaries of the city of Glasgow. Calhoun Grove Estate was Calhoun's private country retreat. So Calhoun had his main place of residence was on Argyle Street in the city. And then he had this estate a ways away from the city of Glasgow. And Calhoun was the person who coined the word Calvin Grove. So it's from Calhoun that we have this word, Calvin Grove. And he, you know, he would have coined it because he created this, what by all accounts was like a beautiful, very, very picturesque estate, you know, with woodlands and gardens. It obviously had the river Kelvin running through it. So he came up with this really lovely name, Calvin Grove. So we talk about that by the skate park because it's the location of the centerpiece of Kelvin Grove Estate, which was this house, this really beautiful neoclassical house that was maybe designed by Robert Adam, like a very famous Scottish architect, neoclassical Scottish architect. And the significance of Calhoun having mapped out, oh, we had this beautiful estate, blah, 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 blah. But how is this relevant to the history of histories of empire that this walking tour of Kelvin Grove Park is ostensibly about? The significance is because Calhoun was a merchant at that time, like very successful merchant. Um, and he made his money through participating in the transatlantic economy of the late 18th century. So Calhoun himself, as far as we know, was not an enslaver. So Calhoun did not own plantations in um, the Caribbean or or the Americas, but he was a, a merchant. So he traded in things like cotton and tobacco and sugar, all of which was totally implicated in an economy that was based on the enslavement of people. Even though Calhoun was not an enslaver himself, as far as we know, he nonetheless made like a very significant fortune from that trade in those colonial commodities. And it was that money that allowed him to build Calvin Grove Estate. So it was through that money that he was able to purchase the land and then build this mansion house located on what we now know as the skate park. So that's the kind of like story that I tell when we're in that location. And I think it's a really great way of talking about the the stories that lie behind place names. You know, in recent years, there's been way more kind of public discussion about that. And in Glasgow, there's much more acknowledgement about, you know, the significance of Buchanan Street, the significance of Glassford Street, the significance of Jamaica Street. And in the case of Calvin Grove, it's maybe a wee bit more indirect because it's not Calhoun Park, for example. But the name was coined by someone who made a huge amount of money through direct through direct involvement in the transatlantic economy that was based on the institution of chattel slavery. So um, I think it's a it's a great way, it's a meaningful way of expanding that conversation around street names and the kind of politics at work around street names and the naming of places. But crucially None of that story is told within the park today. There's no sign, there's no like interpretation panel or anything like that saying, you know, here was the site of Kelvin Grove House. It's totally invisible um, in many ways, but I think, but obviously it's there, you know, it's there, it's embedded in the ground that we walk over. It's kind of conjure that history whenever we utter the word Kelvin Grove. (laughs) Um, So it's about setting that larger context, I suppose, and, and that bigger story. 
And that's often yeah, a location that people find really enthralling. And I show pictures of sometimes of the mansion house, which was demolished in the early 20th century. And that's a very like evocative example, I think. How do you find people respond to the spaces where, as you say, you know, there's no plaque, there's no memorial, there's no signage? Do you find you get a particularly different response compared to when there is something like, as you say, the statue at Park Circus? Yes and no. It's interesting. I think when there's nothing there, I think people do feel as though there should be something there. You know, having now learned about this past, which is very much like embedded within the park, even though it's quite hard to see, people want kind of increased acknowledgement of that. But at the same time, sometimes when we're on the walks, you know, we have conversations about like, but what would be achieved by putting up a plaque? So often we ignore plaques. You know, they just become part of like your everyday environment. So it's rare that you kind of like stop and read what is on a plaque or read what is on, you know, interpretation panel or something like that. So often we do get into conversations on the walks about like, but what do those things do? Probably the majority of people ignore them. They they don't notice them. So then what does it actually do? What does it achieve as like within the urban realm? There are no kind of easy answers, I suppose. We do stop at some locations within the park that are like very, very challenging and raise some really, really difficult issues around constructions of race and systemic racism. So then those conversations really become quite, I suppose, poignant. What is an appropriate way of acknowledging that part of history? Does a plaque achieve anything? Maybe not. You know, maybe is there like a different type of memorial that would be more, more sympathetic, more engaging so we don't really kind of come up with any answers it's more about like exploring different options and it's really interesting um, for me to kind of be a part of those conversations around what my fellow walkers would like to see within the urban environment and sometimes people you know in the case of like the the frederick's memorial statue people are like just take it down (laughs) Um, that's often a point of consensus Um, but sometimes yeah we have like much more nuanced conversations which is really rich Obviously, you've got the walk in the park, but you've got the museum as well. Whatever you're saying, that's a completely different environment, essentially. You're inside, but also in contrast to the park, you've actually got the object within the museum. So you've actually got things that you can physically refer to and discuss. So are the discussions quite different when you're in the museum? Is the walking experience different? Yes, that is a great question. I think increasingly, I am seeing them as really, really different. Because exactly as you say, like in the park... Often we're talking about things which are no longer in situ. So it's quite kind of imaginative. Whereas when we're in the museum, we're in front of things. It's arguably like a kind of more direct experience because we're looking at objects and crucially, we're looking at interpretation. So interpretation is like a bit of a museum speak word, but within kind of museums, you know, heritage studies, interpretation is any media, I suppose, that that is used to tell a story about an object. So often it's text. You know, so it could be an object label, like 20 word object label is a form of interpretation. It could be the lighting. Lighting within a gallery space is a form of interpretation. Digital interactives are forms of interpretation. So it's kind of any media that a museum uses to tell a story about an object. So in Kelvin Grove Museum, we're often looking at interpretation. We're looking at what is on display. What are these objects? And then what has the museum chosen to tell us about these objects? It's a much more direct experience than in the park. And in the museum, we have sort of a lot more to contend with in a way. You know, the Kelvin Grove Museum 
is really busy. You know, I often do the walks on like a Saturday morning or something like that. And it is busy. So <laughs> um, finding spaces where we can have quiet conversations is often like way more difficult compared to in the park. And there is just a lot more stimulation. Toddlers running around and other people. Often the group is kind of like 20 to 25 people. Particularly in Calvin Grove Museum, that's actually quite a large group to like navigate through the museum. And I don't want to impinge upon other people's experiences. So all of that is um, is interesting. So do participant feedback. And I kind of had this hypothesis around like, yeah, walking is a critical heritage practice. And some of the feedback that has come back kind of suggests that there are different conceptions of walking. And that actually the experience of walking is really, really different in the museum compared to out in the park. So now I'm trying to think through, you know, as I kind of start like analyzing the participant feedback, analyzing my own reflective field notes, I'm trying to kind of tease apart, I suppose, like what is walking, quote unquote walking, and what is not. For the participant feedback about the walks in the park, people do, in the main, you know, a majority of respondents indicate that the act of walking help them connect with the topics discussed on the walk. There's something significant about being in the environment and thinking about those histories in situ. So that I think is quite kind of clear, compelling evidence to support this like hypothesis that I have about walking as a critical heritage practice. However, when it comes to the surveys that people complete after the walks in the museum, that that correlation kind of starts to break apart a little bit and people kind of go, yeah, I mean, I suppose a bit, but not really. And so there seems to be something very different about walking in the park and walking in the museum and people's experiences of being in the museum, not necessarily them not correlating that as walking, which is really fascinating. So I'm still trying to like think through all of this stuff and understand kind of what it means and what its significance is. But that's been like a really unexpected finding that has like challenged, definitely challenged my own you know, hypothesis that I set out at the beginning, that walking is not experienced in the same way. The physical action of walking is not experienced in the same way in the, the museum as it is in the park. Yeah, that's going to make me think about how I perceive walking. You're hypothesizing, you're working through it, but is it something about indoor versus outdoor or? I think indoor versus outdoor and like the kind of distances between stops, mm. I think is really important. So when we're in the park, we arguably have longer distances, longer gaps between the stops. And those gaps are really significant. So again, in terms of like my own, I suppose, theorization of the walks and the impact that they have on people, it's the gaps that are just as important as the stops themselves. Because I think it's in those gaps where we're moving from A to B, where people have happenstance conversations with their fellow walkers. And often it's those happenstance conversations where something there can maybe be like real moments of meaning and an impact. So it might be that, or it might be that an individual just uses that, that process of moving from A to B, or from B to C, C to D, whatever, to like think through and to process the information that was relayed at the preceding stop. So there's something about that change in pace that I think is really significant and that has a big impact on what people take away from the overall experience of the two-hour walk. Um, there's something about that like reflection time that is created by moving from A to B, because I should say I never walk and talk. You know, I can't, it's impossible. 
<laughs> you know, when you're dealing with a group of like 20 to 25 people and there's content, you know, that I want to make sure that I relay, I never walk and talk. We walk and then we stop and we have a conversation and we think about things in situ and then we walk some more and then we stop. And I think there's something about that change in pace that is really crucial, but we don't really get that in the same way in the museum. The length of the walk is shorter in the museum and it's also way more interrupted. Going up a flight of stairs or down a flight of stairs or part of the group might take an elevator and part of the group might walk or we might be having to get around obstacles, a family group. So it's much more kind of interrupted and almost stilted walking when we're in the museum versus in the park where there's more space. It's easier to navigate. So I think that is where I'm starting to like drill down to try and understand how people are experiencing walking really differently. In terms of the park, are there any other environmental factors that impact the way people absorb the tours? I don't know, perhaps the weather or if there's, say, a concert or anything going on in the bandstand. Have you found anything like that come up in the feedback? Yeah, for sure. And the same in the museum as well. So like, I think sometimes going back to something that I said earlier about how like every walk is unique. It often it's those external factors which have a huge impact. So there's kind of you know, there's the stuff I control, I can control around like where we stop, what I relay, what information I communicate, what information I share, you know, that stuff that is kind of within my control. And then there are other things which are increasingly outside of my control, the number of people who attend, although, you know, I kind of always cap them at 25 people, the number of people who attend and kind of what is the composition of any one group, what knowledge and experience do people bring with them, because that has a huge impact on how each walk goes. Why have people chosen to come? Why have people chosen to give up two hours of their time on a Saturday or a Sunday? What are people's motivations and joining? That's really significant. So there's those kind of like intergroup dynamics that have a big impact on how every walk plays out. And then there's the really external stuff, which none of us can control. So, So for example, a walk that I did of Kelvin Grove park it was in august of 2022 and it was part of a series of events that uh, a curator at glasgow museums was organizing in conjunction with uh, a program that that he was putting together so he asked if i would be up for doing the walk of kelvin grove park as part of this wider program of events that he was putting together It was a beautiful sunny day august lovely and it was in the morning and i showed up in kelvin grove park met the curator from glasgow museums miles at the time and we both suddenly realized that there was like an orange order rally going on in Kelvin Grove Park that none you know neither of us obviously knew anything about because we might have thought about the dates differently had we known um and you know we were both like okay so before anyone else showed up you know we just kind of went okay do we want to go through with this yeah I think we need to go through with it you know it was advertised people have signed up on Eventbrite they're going to show up yeah we need to go through with it but we're just going to have to you know, really have our wits about us. And if we need to shut it down, then we'll shut it down. And it was fine. You know, we didn't receive any comments or anything like that, but it definitely created an atmosphere. And I was super nervous. I'll be totally honest. I was really nervous throughout those full two hours because we were in Kelvin Grove Park talking about histories of empire and talking critically about histories of empire. We're talking about the very, very negative, violent, you know, coercive aspects of the history of empire. And we're talking critically about the legacies of that and trying to identify those legacies while sharing the park 
with a very, very, very large group of members of the Orange Order um, whose political opinions may be quite different. Um, so that was really uncomfortable. It was really challenging, but it also like added a real sense of um, like camaraderie within the group because all of us, all of the participants were aware of this dynamic. And I said something at the beginning, we sort of bound together a little bit. And there were also like moments of levity in the sense that when we were actually by the skate park and talking about like Patrick Calhoun and talking about Kelvin Grove Mansion and also the fact that it was used as a museum. So when Glasgow City Council purchased Kelvin Grove Estate in, the, in 1852, Kelvin Grove House got repurposed and it actually became the city's first museum. So it's like the predecessor of Kelvin Grove Art Gallery Museum. So we're talking about all of this and talking about the ways that like museums benefited from empire. And then we all just kind of paused because we realized that the orange rally thing that was going on, they all started singing God Save the Queen. <laughs> and it was just this really odd moment. Um, and we all just took pause and kind of went, wow, this is really strange. But also, isn't this such a powerful reminder of how the, the, the legacies of empire live on. You know, we're here talking about these things and talking about uh, this history while like a unionist order are singing God Save the Queen. So that was pretty surreal. Um, that was definitely one of the more surreal moments, I think. But what I'm trying to kind of think through at the moment is like how those, those moments of like total happenstance, whether they... You know, what are the long-term impacts of that? Something that happens on these walks is that they're examples of the creation of embodied knowledge and in-place knowledge because we're kind of in movement and we're in action while ingesting knowledge and information. And so I'm kind of interested in whether those particularly like really memorable experiences mean that someone might retain that information more readily and might then actually like recall that information in the future. For me, certainly now, whenever I walk past the skate park, I remember that moment of people singing God Save the Queen when we were talking about, you know, the history of Kelvin Grove Mansion. So I kind of wonder if like other participants like will have those similar memories and then that'll actually like help support memory recall and help support the retention of the information that's relayed on the walks because they are these like, kind of exceptional moments that sounds like there's a lot to delve into but yeah that's fascinating memory works in funny ways and that kind of trigger of connections that happen in a split second so the moment in terms of research methods yeah I do Mm -hmm. feedback I have my own reflective field notes um there's also like archival research which like underpins you know the content of the walks but something that I'm kind of thinking ahead to is like the value in doing things like follow kind of follow-up walking interviews where I, I meet up with someone who's like attended one of the walks but you know after a time has elapsed and we meet up let's say in Kelvin Grove Park or the museum for that matter too and we kind of retrace our steps and have a conversation about like what do you now associate with this location or is there information that yeah you connect to this particular location or can you tell me a little bit about what you might remember about the conversation we had at this location that's sort of another research method that I'd really like to try and incorporate into the project because I think that would be really rich um, and would help add another level of depth and detail to the participant interviews which provide quite a good kind of like overall 
picture of people's experiences and would help me understand like what people retain and what they don't and what people find meaningful. In terms of the tours and the project more generally, have you kind of found that it's changed how you perceive walking for yourself? Absolutely. I think about walking in like a totally different way now. And, you know, I should say like I've always been a very keen walker probably largely thanks to my grandmother who was a very keen walker and then she kind of handed that down to my dad and then my dad handed it down to me so something which I think is important to acknowledge is that a lot of my kind of thinking around these issues came out of or were happening at the same time as the COVID-19 pandemic was like at its height you know so when all of us were working remotely all of us were working from home you know there was very little that we could do (laughs) Um, and I got into the habit of like going for a walk around my neighborhood every single morning, you know, before I sat down at my desk, before I sat down at my computer, I would go for like a 30 minute walk um, with a cup of coffee through my neighborhood, but would try and like find different routes through the neighborhood, you know, to kind of alleviate that sense of monotony and boredom. Um, And so I was doing that walking practice, I suppose, at the same time, as I was thinking about, okay, what are the next steps? in this walking project, because it was at that point where I was already attuned to the fact that these walking tours of Kelvin Grove that I'd been doing for a couple of years, you know, were actually opening up a whole other set of research questions. And so I was almost like, I was thinking about that while doing these like COVID walks. So it's a bit like meta, um, thinking about walking while walking. <laughs> I see walking very differently in the sense that, um, I use the word walking as a way to kind of describe this research practice. But in my mind, it's like I always have an asterisk next to the word. And what I mean by that is that I'm increasingly understanding that walking is also like really ableist. Even though I use the word walking a lot, I talk about walking and walking and moving through space while walking. I'm also really cognizant that walking is not a universal experience and walking is not a shared thing. And kind of grappling with like that tension as well, because walking, it's almost like I'm just talking about how we move through space and everyone moves through space differently. And whether that's down to physical ability or a whole host of, of like societal factors, but we don't all have the same experience of walking through the project. It's opened my mind to the kind of tensions at play and the problematics at play when you're talking about walking, walking could also be rolling. It could be moving through space with any form of like um, assistive technology. Walking could also be totally imaginative and exploratory. So like something that I'm in the process of producing is a physical heritage trail. It'll be like a 20, 22 page booklet of Kelvin Grove Park, which will mean that people can engage with the project in ways that are beyond just attending an in-person walking tour, which is quite limited. It means that people can kind of engage with the project on their own terms. And that's really important, I think. Um, So it might mean actually that, well, maybe you use the walking tour booklet, the Heritage Trail booklet, and go on your own self-led walk through Kelvin Grove Park. And again, walking might mean in a mobility scooter, or it could mean with a cane, or it could mean you're rollerblading or skateboarding, or, you know, it could mean anything. You could move through the park with the Heritage Trail and do your own, follow your own path through it. I'm also in the midst of producing um, like a project website, which will have an interactive online map that can be accessed like through a desktop computer or a smartphone or like a mobile device. So again, it could be actually that you're not in the park at all and you're stationary and you're in a cafe 
and looking at it on your phone or you're at home, you know, in the comfort of home and you're looking at it um, on your computer. So trying to like expand the ways that people can engage with the project and not just limiting it to being physically present because um, I realized that there are a whole host of factors that might actually be really prohibitive and really, um, yeah, prevent people from participating in that way. So I'm trying to think about creating other access points, certainly not resolve, but like try and work through problematics, I suppose, of this emphasis on walking, walking, walking. When abouts do you think those resources will be available if our listeners are listening and thinking, yep, that sounds ideal for me? That is a great question. Sort of watch the space. No, we're hoping. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm hoping that the the physical heritage trail. Um, I'm working with a brilliant graphic designer illustrator based in Glasgow called Malini Chakrabarti, and Malini and I are hoping that that'll be ready for like October. You know, hopefully in time with Black History Month is is the aim. And then for the project website, which will include the interactive online map, that would probably maybe be more like early in the new year. And if our listeners are able to join you in Kelvin Grove Park or in the museum and gallery, can you tell us when your next your next tours are going to be this year, please? Yes, I absolutely can, Sia. So um, I'll be doing both walks as part of Black History Month in Scotland. Um, so part of the program for that, and that will be on Saturday, the 7th of October. Again, park in the morning, museum in the afternoon. And then fast forwarding to November, on the 12th of November, I'll be leading both walks again as part of a program of events that is being organized by Glasgow Museums to mark the opening of a new exhibition at Kelvin Grove, which um, I think the title of it is Kelvin Grove City of Empire. So that's a new permanent exhibition, permanent display that will be going up at Kelvin Grove. And as part of marking that, exhibition opening there are going to be a series of public events um, organized as part of that so I'm really fortunate to be participating in that program of parallel events which I'm super excited about yeah well that sounds fantastic and something else for us all to look out for I sometimes get approached to do like kind of one-off walks as part of you know specific organizations I you know sometimes ask and say oh would you be up for like doing a walk so I'm always um really open really really open to that type of thing as well and finally, how can listeners keep up to date with the project and the rest of your research? Tons of resources will be on the project website. So, you know, interactive online map and there'll be like a PDF version of the printed booklet. But there'll also be like a list of further resources, which will continuously be like added to and refreshed. And also to list upcoming events. And then also through the College of Arts and Humanities social media handles um, will be another, I think, important way that people keep up to date. And certainly once the project website is up and up and running, you know, I'll forward that information along and that kind of stuff. So I would say keep an eye out for College of Arts content, social media content. Thanks to Rosie for joining us on the podcast today. If, like me, you are keen to join Rosie on one of her upcoming walking tours as part of Black History Month, you can find booking information as well as the other fantastic events which are going to be taking place throughout Scotland this month by visiting blackhistorymonthscotland.org forward slash what's hyphen on. As Rosie mentioned, she will also be running a tour later on in November. And if you stay tuned to the University of Glasgow College of Arts and Humanities social media channels. We are at U of G 
Arts Homs. We will share information as soon as the booking for that is available. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts and Humanities by following us on social media at U of G Arts Hums or by visiting gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Dr. Sia Jackson. Music is by Coma Media. We'll see you next time.